Hello and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Life Podcast. Yes, sir. Hey, this today, uh, this episode specifically, um, we are going to be talking about, we're continuing, first of all, in our Paul's epistle to the saints in Rome. And we're going to be talking about the love of God. Do you guys know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him shall not perish, but have everlasting life? Yes, sir. That is true. So we, in our last episode, or last two episodes in this series, we had talked about how righteousness is imputed to all by faith. And it is through the faith of Abraham. It's through the believing in him who justifies the ungodly uh, that his blood, believing that his blood has covered over us. That is that is how we uh, come into, that is come in, how we come into the flock, guys. So, in Romans chapter 5, and, uh, we see that Paul begins to reveal the love of God. Specifically, five, 5, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5, is the first time that Paul even mentions the word love in this letter. And Paul wants to tie this love to the divine plan and the work that Jesus will ultimately accomplish inside of us. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Romans, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace by which we stand and we exalt in the hope of glory, of the glory of God. The first work of Christ, as revealed by the first goat in Leviticus chapter, chapter 16, is our introduction, guys. It is the covering. Remember, uh, this covering imputes righteousness to us and then gives us peace with God. So it's first the sacrifice, then the covering, and then the righteousness. And then the peace with God. Righteousness gives us peace with God. And that is how Paul introduces us to the second basic concept of reconciliation. So we're going to be talking about peace and reconciliation. They are essentially synonymous terms in the divine law. To have peace, to have reconciliation. The peace offerings speak of reconciliation with God, even as the sin offerings speak of justification. We are justified by faith in the blood. We are reconciled, uh, and we are reconciled. That is, we have peace. So sin offerings speak of justification. Peace offerings in the Old Testament represent reconciliations. Sinners need justifications. Enemies need reconciliation, that is, to make peace. Thus far, Paul has laid the foundations of justification by faith, but he has said little to nothing about reconciliation. Reconciliation, guys, is the foundation of love and speaks of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So when the law pronounces us not guilty by virtue of our faith in Christ's payment and his covering, therefore, for our sins at the cross, the law has no further interest in prosecuting us for sin. And I think this is an important one to learn and understand, guys, because um, only if you sin does the law have interest in you. That law has no interest in a person who's not sinning. You understand that? And therefore, the wrath of God has no interest in a person who's not sinning. Um, that is, who's not making a practice of sin. But those who have accepted the, uh, the blood and have covered themselves, that means that all sin in us, past, present, future, has been covered uh, by his blood. But of course, like we're not you're not supposed to continue sin. So I don't even know. 
obviously we will sin, we will stumble, but we are not to make a practice of it. And um, obviously those who practice sin practice lawlessness. And um, if you practice lawlessness, then your sin is not covered. Uh, just to be clear. The law was made for sinners. It was not made for the righteous. And thus, when the judge rules in our favor, the law was satisfied, guys. And it looks elsewhere to find sinners to prosecute. So we have been ruled not guilty. The ruling has gone in our favor. That is grace. And we are then reconciled to God and at peace with him and his law. And not only God, but his law also becomes our friend. And we are free to learn of his ways, his character. Without the pressure and fear of being a sinner, being prosecuted daily, we can approach God wholly and boldly. You guys understand that? Even while we are yet imperfect. And we can look at ourselves as immature children whose imperfections are tolerated while we are being trained in the ways of our Father. And this is the basis of the inner peace that we can enjoy here, right now, on this earth. It is fully based on the positional righteousness that has been imputed to us by faith. And God looks upon us as his children who, though we are immature, we have the hope of the glory and the expectation of glory that is yet to come. And of course, that glory is that we will uh, be fully in the image and the likeness of Christ. So, in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, we read, And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. These tribulations, quote-unquote, are part of the wilderness experience, guys. You will experience tribulation if you are a believer in Jesus. And it is the same experience that the Israelites has as they walk from Egypt to the promised land. So, verse 5 is the first time in this epistle that Paul speaks of the love of God, as we have mentioned before. It is given through the Holy Spirit. Paul says, who was given to us. So when is the Holy Spirit given to us? Great question. Some say that the Holy Spirit was given to us when we were justified at Passover. Wait a second. Hey, you guys, give me one second here because I'm going to be, I had a conversation with my wife about just this topic today in the car. We were talking about, wait, when is the Holy Spirit deposited into us to produce that new creation? So we're going to be finding out when that is. Is does the Holy Spirit given at Passover when we are justified? Or is the Holy Spirit given to us when we are filled with the Spirit at Pentecost? And so he says, and what I agree with, is that each view is at least half right. Under Moses, the church in the wilderness began to be led by the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, which represents the Holy Spirit. From the first day, they departed from Egypt on the first day of Passover. Yet there was a greater manifestation of the Holy Spirit at Mount Sinai. Okay, and this greater manifestation, the entire mountain was engulfed in the fire of God. And from this, we learn that the Holy Spirit is given to us first. We are justified by faith, and then we be, are, begin to be led by His Spirit from that first day. Yet we must also progress from faith to faith into Pentecost, by which we begin to learn to hear His voice and be obedient as we walk in the Spirit. Pentecost does not make Passover obsolete. But it builds upon that earlier faith, guys. Neither does tabernacles, which is the manifestation of the sons of God and the receiving of the promised inheritance, um, negate Pentecost. But it is the goal. All right. So the wheat in the Pentecost 
is good. So we're going to address a problem that we have often, often seen among kingdom people. And we understand that Pentecost is the leavened feast. What does that mean? That there is leaven in the bread. There are feasts of unleavened bread and then there are feasts of leavened bread. But we often overfocus upon the leaven and forget that it also has wheat, which is good food. Kingdom people who overfocus on the leaven can get the impression that Pentecost is evil and ought to be avoided. Or they despise Pentecost, thinking that I'm beyond Pentecost. That is, I'm beyond this leavened feast. We ought to recognize that Pentecost represents the holy place in the temple. Right? You have the outer court, the inner court, the, and the holy of holies. So it represents that middle place and the place of priesthood. It's a place of priesthood and intercession. And you can't get to the most holy place without passing through the holy place. So don't throw out the wheat. Don't throw it out Pentecost. Don't throw out um, the law and hearing and understanding and receiving it, guys. If you despise Pentecost, um, you will not be able really to go into tabernacles anointing. And uh, you are deceived if you think that you can get to the Holy of Holies um, straight from the outer court. It's not possible, guys. So... Don't be ashamed of these tribulations or the wilderness periods. You need them. Exult in these trials, knowing that God is still infusing his character into your heart through this Pentecost and through these trials, through uh, the testing of your faith, guys. So here we go in Romans chapter 5, 5. Uh, again, the reference to love. He defines the love of God in order to distinguish it from human love. 4. And verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The emphatic diaglot reads more literally, We being yet sinners, Christ died on our behalf. In other words, Paul's main point is to show that Christ did not die for righteous men, but for sinners. He died while we were sinners. And he himself says, that is Jesus. He says, I haven't come to call the, uh, the righteous, but uh, the sinners. That's what he himself says, guys. So it's important that we understand that. And by the way, uh, if, if my audio sounds a little bit rickety and a little bit weird, uh, it's because I'm using these headphones. I'm actually on a travel, so I don't actually have my microphone. But maybe you guys noticed it. Maybe you guys didn't. Either way. That's what I'm using. So the fact that Paul uses the continuous present tense suggests a reference to his previous discussion of the imputed righteousness, guys. While it is true that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, the fact is that we are still yet sinners, though not in our standing before God. So in our legal standing before God, we are not sinners counted as sinners in his eyes. But yet we are still sinners, guys. Our righteousness is not yet intrinsic. It is only imputed. Do you understand that? So it is not really our righteousness, but it's his righteousness that is imputed to us that it makes us right and brings peace to uh, and brings us into peace before God so that we can come to him and receive an understanding of how to become righteous. And as we learn, eventually um, it will be intrinsic to our nature uh, because Christ in us will be manifested in us. And um, that's that's a pretty cool. That's a pretty cool thought, guys. This is heavy, I know. This is thick. This is deep. This is meaty. Um, so, you know, take your time as you're digesting this. It's, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a difficult book to read, but it, 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 I guarantee you once you start getting it, when you start understanding, ruminate on it, pray on it a little bit, you'll start to have uh, this truth of God revealed to you in a, an amazing way. There are many, guys, 
who would die for a good man. Many Jews would die for Moses. Many Muslims would die for Muhammad. Many Christians would die for Jesus. This is type of love is good. But God's love exceeds even this. Those who truly have the love of God would even die for their enemies. You guys understand this? And that is why true Christianity shatters the expectations of any other religion. Because instead of being willing to kill for Jesus or even die for him, true Christians would give their own lives for their enemies. This is the new covenant thinking. So next time you feel like you want to get in an argument with someone who doesn't agree with you, who is a brother in Christ or not a brother in Christ, next time you feel like you want to get angry, mad, frustrated, um, and upset at someone who may not um, understand or think the way that you think, um, remember that the true love of God is revealed in this, that you love one another, okay? And that is that is the purpose of life. That is the purpose of um, that is your purpose on earth to be the expression of love. So we're going to be talking about justification and reconciliation here in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So the wrath of God is for who? Those who are under the law, which are those who are sinned. But the wrath of God has put all, but the law has put all men under the law, right? Because all have sinned. So, by his blood, being justified, we have been saved from his wrath. That is, this judicial uh, point of God where he has to deal with sin. That is what wrath is. It is not this like distant thing apart from his law. It is because sin is not, um, sin is against his nature, he is against those things which are against his nature. And that is where his wrath is, is seen. Verse 10 says, For if, wow, we were enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled. Wow. We shall be saved by his life. Paul is showing us the relationship between justification and reconciliation. To be justified is to receive the favorable ruling from, from God. That is, we avoid the judicial wrath of the law. We deserve the wrath. But he says, hey, I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to cover you. Now, all you got to do is just receive that thing, and um, we receive it through an understanding of who he is, and we receive it through hearing of the truth, okay? You hear, you understand, you believe, and it's done. And then there's a process of, of learning and growing. Salvation is a process, guys. So, his blood paid for our sin and is the basis for our justification, for the law cannot judge a man twice for the same crime. On the other hand, enemies need reconciliation. And because there is a conflict between enemies, enemies need peace. They need harmony. They need agreement. Whereas sinners are in need of justification. You guys understand the difference? Enemies need harmony. Sinners need justification. If there are adversaries disputing in a court of law, each claiming to be in the right, they are only there because they were unable to resolve their dispute out of court. As legal enemies, they need to be reconciled. But when this is not possible, then they go to court, each hoping the judge would justify their side. In the case of sinners who have violated the divine law, the enemies are all those who have sinned. These are, in, in effect, God's enemies because they disagree with his righteous standard. So if you disagree with the law, if you disagree with the way that God does things, then you become an enemy to God. And um, either you sue for the right to sin or you defend themselves against God's suit against you 
by presenting your own portfolio of good deeds by which you can claim uh, outweigh your bad deeds. Hence, both men are enemies, both men are sinners, unless they know the proper defense in the divine court. So, if they point out to the righteousness of of Christ, if they say, well, even though, yes, I am a sinner, but I'm going to point to the righteousness of Christ instead of my own righteousness, and if they inform the court that they that the full penalty for their sin has been compensated by the payment that Christ made on the cross, then they can receive justification. So it's really looking to Jesus to justify us instead of looking to ourselves to be justified. Yet it is repentance that is a complete and total change of mind that brings those sinners into agreement with God and his law, and that is what provides reconciliation. And many Christians have been justified by their faith, but are yet not truly reconciled to God. You guys understand this? So we can be justified by faith, but still not be truly reconciled to God because we're enemies. We're enemies to him. We don't agree with his law. And I and have talked to many Christians who disagree with God's law and his character. They say the law has been done away with. We don't need it. Jesus died for us. That's it. The law is done away with. And so to the extent that we disagree with God, that is to the extent that we are not fully reconciled to him. So Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How can we be reconciled without being in agreement with him? And the key is to understand the Greek word reconciled. See, there are two forms of this word used in Paul's writings. And most translators do not recognize the difference. In chapter 5, verse 10 of Romans, Paul uses the Greek term katsalaso, which means to change or to exchange. The word was used of an exchange of coins in a sale or an equal exchange of property. Thus, while we were yet enemies disagreeing with God, he made the exchange and paid our debt to the law. The other form of the word is apokalaso, which Thayer's lexicon defines, defines as to reconcile completely, to reconcile completely, or to reconcile back again. This is a two-way reconciliation where both parties are reconciled to each other. Katsalaso is what Christ did for us while we were yet enemies. Apocalazzo is when we come into agreement with him and we are reconciled back again. For this reason, the Concordant Version translate Catalasso as conciliation and Apocalazzo as reconciliation. In Romans chapter 5, Paul was speaking of what Jesus Christ did for us prior to any change in our attitude or behavior. It was a one-sided conciliation where God took the initiative while we were still fighting him. When we respond to this conciliatory work, then a reconciliation takes place. When men conciliate back again, there is a reconciliation. And this is Paul's appeal in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Namely, that God was in Christ conciliating, katalasso, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of conciliation. That is, those who believe the word of he has done this. He has conciled. He has 
done the conciliation. In verse 20, he says, of first of first of first Corinthians, excuse me, second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though we were entreating God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be conciliated to God. Catalasso. That is to say, Christ's death on the cross was a conciliation of the world. It was certainly not yet a wreck conciliation because when he died they still had disagreements their trespasses made them enemies still in need of reconciliation and so we as ambassadors of the kingdom have gone to other nations with a word of conciliation we carry the message on behalf of christ be conciliated to god so that the two disputing parties can be reconciled reconciled thereby making peace so um the concordant version of romans chapter 5 verse 11 reads this way and we are uh, about out of time here i'll read this last thing and we will will uh have to be done unfortunately verse 10 says for if being enemies we were conciliated to god through the death of his son much rather being conciliated we shall be saved by his life. So the so I just want to clarify this point. We were conciliated. That is to say, conciliation is one-sided. Reconciliation is us agreeing and us it, it is two-sided. There's one person agreeing and then the other person agreeing in agreement with each other. So when we were enemies, we were conciled to God. Okay. Um again, in verse eleven, yet not only so, but we are glorifying also in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now obtained the conciliation. So we haven't received reconciliation because we were enemies and we didn't agree with them. Okay? We have attained conciliation. Conciliation is a demonstration of the love of God. Okay? And most people, most men, are incapable of such divine love. For we would hardly die for a righteous man, let alone an enemy. And that is to say, most Christians have not really understood the conciliation that Christ accomplished at the, at the cross. Some have not understood its one-sided nature. You guys understand this? So this one-sided nature is the case that he has conciled. Others have taken its one-sidedness and have negated any need for man to respond and, and like kind to accomplish a reconciliation. So he responds to us when we, we, we disagree. And how does he respond to us? How does he concile us? By paying for our debt. Okay? We become reconciled to him by uh, really accepting that, agreeing with this provision, agreeing with those things, and coming into conformity with the righteous, righteousness and the righteous standard that he has. So bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Um, hope that you are touched by it. Hope that it means something. We will see you again next episode on the Overcoming Life podcast.